taken from Judges chapter 7. Verses 1 through 8. And it reads, Then Jeruel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. Indeed, what a thank you, BJ. What a wonderful, what a wonderful song to lead into the proclamation of God's word that we would ask God to speak. Speak, O Lord, that your truth would triumph over unbelief. That is my prayer. That is my prayer this this evening. That is my prayer all the time. That God's word would triumph over my unbelief. That his word and his truth would triumph over the unbelief in every heart in here this evening. All that God asks of us is that we believe. And yet as we have seen in previous messages That is the hardest thing to do, is just to believe God. So our prayer this evening, as it ought to be every time we gather together around God's word, is Lord, let your truth triumph over unbelief. That is the word of God to us this evening. That his truth is more powerful than even our unbelief. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again that you have allowed us to come to this place at this appointed time. That we have the privilege 
the undeserved privilege of opening your word and hearing you speak. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Cause us to see Jesus. Cause us to hear Jesus. Cause us to believe Jesus. Cause us to worship Christ. And even now, it is our prayer that you would, by your spirit, remind us that Christ is the only way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, that no one, no one can come unto you except by the Son. Might every heart in here Know that, savingly, for the eternal rest of our souls. Be with us now, by your Spirit. Might even Jesus become a new Christ to us, even this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, recently... My uh, family and I, we just returned from vacation. And of course, while we were on vacation, people always ask me, well, how is the church doing? And not only do they ask me, how is the church going? But a lot of people ask me, well, what kind of church is it? I'm sure you get the same question from time to time, Sister Bino. What kind of church do you attend? And inevitably, the conversation turns to, well, I go to a Reformed church. And then they ask the inevitable question, well, what is that? What does that mean? And at the risk of oversimplification and at the risk of trivializing the all-importance of what Reform theology and what Reform Christianity ultimately means. When I speak to people, if I could sum it up in two words, it would be this. God saves. Somebody asked me, well, what does your church teach? Ultimately, I would say we teach Jesus saves. That is the summation of what our doctrine is. Yes, 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 we believe in the doctrines of grace. Yes, we hold to the five solas of the Reformation. Yes, we adhere to Westminster Confession of Faith mostly. (laughs) But ultimately, if I were to just want to simplify it and nail it down, I would sum it up in two words. Jesus saves. From beginning to end, it is God the Lord Jesus who saves us. Salvation is of the Lord. He he ordains it. He accomplishes it. He applies it. He sustains it. If I am saved this evening, it is because God has saved me. 
if I live and if I die saved, it is because God has sustained me. The only thing, the only thing, beloved, that I contribute to my salvation is the sin that needs to be forgiven. That's all. This is, as far as I'm concerned, this is our Reformed theology in a nutshell. Now, surely, surely we understand, Brother John, that there are implications that flow from this truth. There are implications that flow from the understanding that God saves. And they have implications for further understanding who Christ is and what Christ has done. And then, therefore, how we should live in light of him. Still the root of the matter on which we do not compromise at all, it is this truth. God saves. Jesus saves. And this, this is a truth that I think that God would have us to understand as we look at our text this evening. As we have come to the seventh chapter of Judges as we are making our way through the book of Judges. We have been looking at the life of Gideon for the past few weeks, and now we come to the point where God has called Gideon to put his army that God has called together into battle. And as we look into our text, we see that what God is going to remind Gideon of before Gideon goes into battle, God wants to make sure Gideon understands this key truth. And what is that? God saves. God saves. God saves. It is in this passage that we see this. And we see that his save, we see his saving purposes, and we see his saving prerogative. We see his saving purposes. For God has a purpose in redeeming his people. For God has a purpose in everything that he does. And what is the purpose of God? His glory. His honor, his praise, and this is the purpose in redemption. This is the purpose of God in saving his people, and this is the purpose of God as he rallies and prepares the army of Gideon to take on the Midianites. And you see this in in verse 2 where it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now you remember, you remember when Gideon had put out the fleece and there was no no need for Gideon to put out the fleece fleece as we saw in chapter 6 because God had already spoken to Gideon. He had given Gideon his word. He had given Gideon his promises, but he not only gave Gideon his word, he not only gave Gideon his promises, but what did he also give Gideon? He gave Gideon his spirit. 
So Gideon had the word of God. Gideon had the spirit of God. But he not only had the word and the spirit, Gideon also had the people of God. And Gideon had sounded the trumpet. He had sounded the call. And God had rallied the troops around Gideon. And so now here is Gideon standing upon the hillside. 32,000 men gathered with Gideon, preparing to go into battle. You know, I cannot help but think to myself that even though Gideon had the word of God, even though Gideon had the spirit of God, and even though Gideon had the people of God, 32,000 troops standing there on the hillside as Gideon looked down into the valley and saw the Midianites, I am sure Gideon thought to himself, Lord, my army is too small. For there gathered in the valley was the mighty army of the Midianites, numbering some 135 troops strong, professional soldiers who had been in the battle before, who had known how to use a sword and a shield, who knew how to fight and were fierce and ornery battle-tested men. And here's Gideon with a bunch of farmers, cave dwellers, fearful, trembling, faint-hearted men, and he knew it because his heart was one of them. 32,000. There's 135 Midianites down in the valley. Gideon must have thought, Surely the Lord has another word before we go into battle. Let's just sit here and wait a while until God speaks. And indeed, God does speak, but God doesn't speak in the matter that Gideon had anticipated. For when God speaks, God says, Gideon, the men who are with you are too many. Excuse me? You have too many. You have too many. He turns the table on Gideon. And whereas instead of assuring Gideon that his army was too small, God tells Gideon that his army is too big. Why? Because here's an important principle to remember, beloved. That God is not trying to give Gideon self-confidence. God is wanting Gideon to have God-confidence. Oh, buddy. Isn't that contrary to what many preach today? That your problem and my problem is our self-esteem problem. That your problem and my problem is that we just don't live with enough confidence in ourselves. That we just don't believe in ourselves enough. And here is God saying to Gideon, I'm not going to give you self-confidence. What you lack is God-confidence. 
And the only way that you get God confidence is that you must be brought to the end of yourself. When is too many a problem? Well, too many is a problem, first of all, when God says it's a problem. And God told Gideon, too many right now is a problem. But not only is too many a problem when God says it's a problem, it's a problem when we find our confidence and security in those numbers. And here is God reminding Gideon that his confidence and his security is not in those around him. It is not in his ability to work up a crowd and get them around him. It is not in his portfolio. It is not in his investments and his bank account. It is not in any of the things that worldliness will tell you is success. And therefore, you can find your confidence. But your confidence must be in God. And the only way, Gideon, I'm going to assure you of that is to show you that those with you are too many. Why are they too many? God says, because if I was to allow you If I were to allow you to go into battle and you would win the battle against the Midianites, even though you only have 32,000 and they have 135,000, if I were to give them into your hand, you would boast over me that you have done something good, that you have done something Boast over me. The word there literally means that you would beautify yourself instead of me. That you would think yourself great. And in doing that, perceive God as small. So God says, no, no, no. There will be no boasting except that I boast in me. This is what God does, beloved. This is what God does better than anybody because this is something that only God can truly do. And that is boast in himself. And this is his design. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with that all-familiar question, does it not? What is the chief end of man? And Brother Lee, the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. My beloved, that's not only the chief end of man, that's the chief end of God. The purposes and the plan and the end of God, if we might speak in them terms, is that God glorifies God. God boasts in God. God makes much of God. That's what the Bible says. God makes much of God in his works of nature. Look around you. Look around you. You look around you and then you look into the scriptures and you hear the word of God speak. And over and over again, the scriptures are reminding us 
That the nature that God has created has a purpose. And what is that? To boast of his majesty. To proclaim his glory. In Psalm 8 and verse 1, the Bible says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. In all the earth. His name is majestic. His glory is seated over everything. In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Day and night over and over and over again, the firmaments and all of creation is proclaiming, Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How's the purpose in creation? Is that all creation? Glorify him, but he not only glorifies himself in works of creation, beloved. He also glorifies himself in the works of grace. For our salvation. When God comes and not only creates the world for his glory, but even as the world falls and he begins the recreation and he begins it in our hearts, it's for the express purpose that we would glorify him. Your salvation and my salvation, if you are saved this evening, it's for the purpose of making much of God. That's why he saved you. That is the ends of salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 says that we have been saved in accordance with his glory and to his praise. But not only in our salvation, but the, the works of grace that glorifies God also is our sanctification. Not only are you saved for his glory, but you are being conformed to the image of Christ. You are being made more holy and holy every day. You are going from glory to glory for the express purpose of glorifying God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 to 13, We are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us both to will and to work for what? His own good pleasure. For his own delight. For his own glory. In Isaiah 48 and 11, the Bible reminds us that God shares his glory with no one. And that is the point, beloved. That is the point that God is getting over to Gideon. That the glory here will be mine and mine alone. 
But that is something that we need to have pressed upon our minds. As our minds are being renewed, we need to understand, as Paul says, as he gets to the end of Romans chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If that is the case, then not only does God boast in himself, but our boast must be in him as well. Our boast must be in him as well. And this is particularly true, again, of salvation, for God desired here to deliver Israel. That's his point. He's going to save Israel. But he's going to do it for his glory. So God here is not only saving the Midianites, God God is not only saving Israel from the Midianites, but God is saving Israel from Israel. And when God saves us, he not only saves us from this world, but he saves us from us. Because he is going to accomplish salvation in your life. And the better and the more you understand the glories of salvation and what God has done to accomplish salvation, God gets bigger and you get smaller. Smaller, smaller, smaller. Until there is only Christ to speak of. But that is not the case. Because we boast, we boast, you know, we, we boast in giftedness. That's what we boast in. We boast in those who are most gifted. Bring a gifted person into the circle, or into the conversation, and all of a sudden the conversation turns to the giftedness of that person. We boast in giftedness. God is looking for godliness. The church is searching around for the next great American idol, and God is looking for the next great humble servant. Isn't it interesting? I think it's interesting, at least, that the most gifted people are often the least godly. Think about it. Whether it's in sports or politics or entertainment or philosophy or, or religion, whatever it is. The most gifted people are often the least godly. From Tiger Woods, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Christopher Hitchens. The most gifted are often the least godly. Why? Because the most gifted are those in whom we boast the most. And oftentimes, too often, they end up boasting in themselves. This is why God has saved us from us, beloved. God is not allowing 
God will not allow humanity to boast in his presence. Won't allow it. Ask Nebuchadnezzar about it. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar looks out over his kingdom and he thinks that he has done a great and mighty thing, that he has built this magnificent kingdom of Babylon, the greatest kingdom on all the earth. And God says, you hold on a minute. And before long, the man has lost his mind. His nails have grown out. He's crawling around on all fours and he's eating grass. He has the Lord is not going to allow creatures to boast over the Creator. Don't believe me? Ask Herod about it. Herod there in Acts chapter 12. When he is there and he is on his throne and he is speaking. And the people began to marvel at his speech. And they said, oh, a God has spoken to us this day and not a man. And God says, hold on a minute. And the Herod drops dead and the worms consume his flesh. Why, beloved? Because nothing, nothing says self-deification in humanity like pride does. Whenever we boast in ourselves, we are taking upon us that which only belongs to God. And God will not have. Anyone boast in his presence. Is that what he said through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9, verses 23 through 24? Let, him, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows God. That is my only boast. That I know the Lord. And while that may not be enough to get me into the upper echelons of society. That is enough. That I would have victory in God. This we need to be reminded as it says in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9. Gideon, East Point Church, salvation is of the Lord. God saves. That is the purpose of God. We see that as he's speaking to Gideon. But not only do we see the purpose of God, we also see the prerogative of God. And what is the prerogative of God? Well, the prerogative of God is to choose. That's what he says. It's his prerogative to choose. Look at verse Look at verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go with you. God decides. 
God chooses. Now here's the situation. He tells Gideon, he tells Gideon, Gideon, your army is too big for me to get the glory in this battle. So the first thing I want you to do, Gideon, is send home those who are faint of heart. Those who really don't want to be here anyway. Just get rid of the faint-hearted ones right off the top. They have no heart for the battle. They have no desire for the victory. They are here giving only lip service to me, but their hearts are far from me. Cut them off right at the top. 32,000 right away as soon as Gideon says, if you don't want to be here, you can leave. Bye. How many leave? 22,000. You can see why Gideon was concerned. 22,000. First chance they get. Head for the hills. And now Gideon has 10,000. Surely God now is going to say, I didn't mean for that many to leave. But no, instead, again, he looks at Gideon and he says, Gideon, those who are with you are too many. Excuse me, God. There are 135,000 Midianites, armed, seasoned soldiers down in the valley. And what I couldn't do with 32,000, surely I'm not going to be able to do with 10. Again, God is wanting Gideon to know that there is only going to be one soldier in this battle who gets the glory. It is going to be God himself. And so he says, Gideon, take the 10,000 that are with you and go down by the river. Go down by the river. And when, I, when you get there, I am going to test them. Literally, he says, I'm going to refine them. I'm going to thin out the ranks. I'm going to choose an army. The one that I says, go with you, they go. And the one that I says, that I say, don't, does not go with you, will not go. God chooses his army. Gideon doesn't choose it. He has no right to choose it. God chooses. God chooses his army. God chooses his family. God chooses his flock. That's his prerogative. Not only is he going to get glory in salvation, but he's going to demonstrate his prerogative in salvation in that he chooses. Look around you. Look around you. You don't get to choose who's at East Point Church. God does. You don't get to choose who's in the family of God. God does. You don't get to choose who's going to be in heaven and who's going to be in hell. God does. That's his prerogative. 
Gideon, you're not going to be able to go through the ranks and say, I want this one and I want that one. No, Gideon, I will tell you who goes. I want you to go down by the water. The men are going to be thirsty. And you watch them. And the one who laps up the water like a dog, and there'll be some there who lap up the water in their hands. And the one who takes the water up in their hands, they're going to go. And you can dismiss the rest. Beloved, after God had finished choosing, there was only 300 men. Do the math. Don't ask Philip. 97,000. Not 9,700. 9,700 men. God dismissed. 300. Why? How does he choose? It would seem arbitrary, wouldn't it? It would seem arbitrary, Brother John. It would seem arbitrary. There is nothing more spiritual about lapping up water with your hands as opposed to lapping it up with your tongue. There's nothing more godly about doing one as opposed to the other. So it would seem arbitrary. In fact, I read a commentary this week where the commentator says, well, God just made this arbitrary decision. Excuse me? God doesn't make arbitrary decisions. Why does he choose those 300 and dismiss that 9,700? For his own good pleasure. For his own glory, for his own purposes. And beloved, you can believe God has purposes. He is purposeful in choosing you for salvation. It is not arbitrary, it's not a game of duck, duck, goose. God has delighted to choose you for his purposes according to his good pleasure. And it is his own good pleasure. It is his own glory. And this, again, is for the purpose that we would see the glory of God in salvation and boast in him and not ourselves. Why did you get chosen and I didn't get chosen? Well, because you lapped with like a dog and I lapped with my hand. You got to be kidding me. Beloved, the reason that God has chosen you and not someone else for the glorious of salvation it's for his own good pleasures, for his own purposes, but it is also so that you would be humbled and glorifying and bringing him praise and honor and thanksgiving. This is what the Bible reminds us over and over and over again. 
Again, in Ephesians 1 and 6, we are saved and redeemed according to his own good pleasure for his glory. And Romans chapter 9 reminds us then that it's not in the lapping, it's not in the kneeling, it's not in the running, it's not in the willing, but it is of God who shows mercy. God chooses because God saves. This is the point that we need to keep deep down into our understanding of the nature of salvation and give him glory. For we should be asking ourselves over and over again, what has caused us to differ? Why are you the recipients of God's grace and some others not? Why are you the recipients of God's salvation and perhaps your brother or your sister or your mother is or your father is not? What has caused you to differ? For who sees anything different in you, the Bible says? Let's consider this. Why have you received salvation and others have not? Is it because there is something better in you? There's something more glorious in you? No, beloved. And then if you have received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Because ultimately, it is only because God has been merciful to you for his own good pleasure and in his own time that you have been saved. This is what Isaac Watts means when he says, why was I made to hear the voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin." Now, this is an amazing thing. God chooses because God saves. He saves. That's why we sing this evening, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. All the saints will shout together. What? Jesus saves. Jesus saved, rising up so vast in song, lifting up salvation song. The redeemed will sing forever. What? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And so we need to understand then that God's choice brings him glory. It brings him glory. That is the point. That is the point of it all. Why does God choose? Why does God choose apart from who you are or what you have done? Why does God choose? He chooses for his glory. This is why, beloved, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even that 
That is not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no flesh might glory in his presence. That's why. So that no one, no one might glory in his presence. Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 2 that we have been saved by grace through faith and this not of ourselves. But it is the gift of God. Why? So that no one can boast. That's why. So then, if I am to be boasting, and I will because I boast, because of the sinfulness of my heart, I boast. And therefore, if I am to boast... Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, I will boast only in the cross of Christ. You know, yesterday we were, uh, during the picnic, the brothers were outside playing basketball. Outside playing basketball. Let me tell you something. There is nothing, nothing that, 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 that engenders more boasting than when the brothers get together in athletic competition. The boasts are flowing back and forth all over the place, making much of themselves, far much more than they ought to. I could not help but wonder to myself, wow, out of those same lips tomorrow, they will claim to be boasting of Christ. And I said, I just hope that is true. Beloved, if we must boast, and we do, let that boast be in the cross of Christ. Let that boast be in our own inadequacies. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I will boast not in myself, not in my abilities, but I will boast in my weaknesses. Why? Because when I boast in my weaknesses, then is God strong. Gideon, you're not going to boast in 32,000 taking the Midianites. You're going to boast in the weakness of 300 men destroying the Midianites because it is then when your army is weak that I am strong. Can you imagine that? I'm not going to boast in making the shot. I'm going to boast in Christ that even though I missed the shot, I still belong to him. Can you imagine that? You know, it's amazing to me that these guys, after they score a touchdown or, or after they win the Super Bowl or after they win some big game, they get in front of the camera and they say, Oh, to God, God be the glory to God. All to Jesus, all to Jesus. They are boasting in Christ in their strength. It takes no, no big power to do that, beloved. 
What happens when you've been destroyed on the field? What happens when you've been denied the victory? What happens when you are the one who dropped the winning touchdown and everybody is pointing to you as the goat? What happens then? It is then that we really find out where the boast is. Only when I am weak, then is he strong. Beloved, that's what God is doing. He is bringing us to an end of ourselves for the purpose of us boasting in him. He is stripping us of those things that the world thinks are most appropriate for success and adoration and boast in this world. And he's stripping us of those things so that we might see that all we have is Christ. And Christ is all we need. That's where our boast must be, beloved. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, let us speak less of what we have done for God and more of what God has done for us. I am weak, then him I am strong. Here's the key, here's the key to Gideon's victory and Israel's salvation. It is this, that God would get all the glory. And this is the key, this is the key to our salvation as well. This is the key to our victory, that God would get all the glory, all the praise. You do understand, then, that God doesn't mind fighting against the odds. Because when he fights, there really are no odds. And that's why he only needs 300 men. He only needs 300 men because there will be no doubt who, who works the victory? There will be no doubt who gets the glory. And for God doesn't need many. Only need a few. Only need a few. The U.S. Marines like to use the tagline, the few, the proud, the Marines. And they like to boast that we are a few good men. But beloved, God does the U.S. Marines one better. For God doesn't use a few good men because he don't have any. Oh, he doesn't have any good men. God uses a few bad men. That's all he needs. It's all he needs. Oftentimes, all he needs is just one. All Jesus, got, all Jesus had was 11. 11 ordinary men, run of the mill, men that the rest of, the hist of history would not have thought much of, given even second thought to. Fishermen, tax collectors, a wannabe soldier. Nobody's. Nobody even paid attention to them. Eleven men, empowered with victory for God, turned the world upside down. Doesn't mean many, just a few. One man, 
One man standing, standing against the, 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 the arrayed powers of Western civilization, standing against the mighty church of Rome and daring to stand up and saying that salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone. One man daring to stand up and say the truth of the gospel has been hid long enough and dare stand up. Martin Luther, one man. And they asked Martin Luther, how could you dare stand against all of these by yourself? And he said, one man with God makes the majority. One man. One teenager. One teenager. William Borden graduates high school in Chicago. During the summer of his graduation, he gets saved, gets on fire for the Lord, goes off to school, goes off to college at Yale. One teenage young man gets to Yale, looks around, and he sees the depravity of soul. He sees the end of humanistic thinking and philosophy among the minds of the young men at Yale and decides that he's going to start a Bible study. Turn this place around. By the end of his senior year, there were 1,300 students at Yale. 1,000 of them were in Bible study. One man. One teenager. God doesn't need many. In fact, God doesn't ask you to be the smartest. He doesn't ask you to be the richest. He doesn't ask you to be the most gifted. God is not insisting on you getting perfect A's in school in order to be used. If you're getting that pressure, that comes from your parents. Something you need to talk about with them. That's not from God. God doesn't need straight A's to use you. God doesn't need a huge portfolio to use you. You don't have to be the most impressive in the building. All he asks is that you believe. Somebody, anybody, who is just willing to believe God, God will delight to do mighty things. Things this world would say only a mighty God could do. All he asks is that we believe. That's all, beloved. That's all. That's all. I'm not asking anything else of you this evening except that you believe. If you have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, that is all I'm asking of you this evening, is that you believe. Nothing else. Trust him. Come to him.
and believe that he who is calling you by his spirit this evening is not only able to save you, he is able to satisfy you. You come to Jesus. So all he asks him, that you believe. He don't want your money. He doesn't need it. He don't want your giftedness. He doesn't need it. All he wants you to do is just believe that there is a Christ who has died that you might have eternal life. All he asks is that you believe him. I promise you, if you believe him, he will do wonders in your life. All he asks is that you believe. Believe now. Believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here, God, under the sound of my voice who doesn't know you and the pardon of their sins, Lord, I do pray that you would, by your Spirit, break their hearts and that faith would rise up in their hearts and they would be willing to speak it with their mouth. Confess the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, and they would be saved. Oh, Father, we know that if this happens, it's only because you have designed it this very moment. And we pray, God, that you would delight to save them right now. Come by your Spirit. Open up a heart. Open up a mind. That they might see Jesus. That they might have heard Christ. That they might see that Jesus saves. That they might be saved. Right now, oh Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony that you gave to Gideon. Thank you for the testimony that you've given to us this evening. Salvation is in your hands. And the glory belongs all to you. Be glorified this evening in saving your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.